Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, one of the fascinating parts about reading the early parts of the Bible, the very beginning of the book of Genesis, is reading how long uh, people lived in those, in those days. Uh, for example, Kenan lived 910 years, uh, Noah made it to 950 years, and then there's Methuselah had a whopping 969 years of age when he died. You know, when you think about that, how long they lived, think of the knowledge and the skills these men would have gained over that time. It must be incredible. Uh, over time, their knowledge would compound, allowing them to do yeah, incredible things. You know, think about this. What if Isaac Newton, someone like Isaac Newton, could have studied science for 900 years? Think of the progress he could have made. Or what if Mozart could have written music for that long? Or what if John Calvin could study and teach theology for you know, centuries upon centuries? Be phenomenal. And even now, when people live relatively short lives in uh, our time, the older someone gets, the more their expertise grows. They compound the knowledge they gain and the skills they have. And so when someone dies, a treasure trove of knowledge and skill is lost. And that was certainly true of uh, someone like Elisha also. The Lord used him in many astounding, wonderful ways to, to help Israel. You know, there's almost not a prophet like Elisha, all the miracles uh, he did by God's power. And who wouldn't want to hold on to him after the powerful miracles he performed? And as we see from this text, the king of Israel certainly felt that way. Didn't want to see Elisha die, but in the end, they need to let him go as indeed the Lord takes his life away. But as sad as that was, having their great miracle worker die, all was not lost. In fact, far from it. And that's because Elisha could only do what he did by the Lord's power, by the power and faithfulness of God. And even though Elisha was dead, the Lord was still there. And that's what mattered. That's what mattered for Israel. The Lord was still there. He was still there for his people, and he would continue to work salvation for them and for us, even though their great miracle worker dies. So that brings us to the sermon theme. Even though their great miracle worker dies, God continues his work of salvation for his people. We'll look at three points. First of all, we'll look at a proclamation of victory. Secondly, we'll look at a surprising resurrection and finally, a compassionate and faithful God. So first of all, a proclamation of victory. Now, Elisha prophesied quite a long time in Israel over the reign of quite a few Israelite kings. Uh, the last text we looked at was from 2 Kings 7, and that text most likely featured King Jehoram, one of the sons of Ahab. Uh, six chapters later, we've moved ahead three kings to Jehoash, who's also sometimes called a Joash. You can see that from 2 Kings 13. Sometimes he's called Jehoash, sometimes Joash. But now Elisha's time has finally come to an end. Verse 14 says, 
Elisha had fallen sick with the illness by which he was about to die. And again, it seems devastating for Israel. How can you replace someone who struck an entire Syrian army with blindness and then led that same army right into the middle of Samaria? Seems impossible. And so at this, King Jehoash came down, wept before him, saying, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Now, it's difficult to know exactly what to make of that statement, chariots and horsemen of Israel. Whatever the case, the king knows that Elisha's time on earth is soon, soon going to be finished. And so he mourns. However, before he dies, Elisha gives one last piece of good news. He gives a proclamation of victory. And as we see from also our text, he does it in a very step-by-step fashion. As I was reading the text, it reminded me of the old game uh, Simon Says. I'm not sure if any child still plays the game Simon Says, but uh, the person who's it proclaims, Simon Says, do this or do that. The children need to follow the instructions exactly. Well, here in our text, it's Elisha Says, and the king needs to follow his instructions exactly. Take a bow and some arrow, Elisha says. The king does it. Draw the bow, Elisha says. And he does it. Open the window eastward, Elisha says. And he does it. Shoot, Elisha says. And he shoots the arrow. And then Elisha gives the good news, the Lord's arrow of victory the arrow of victory over Syria. And what good news this was for Israel. As we can see throughout the Elisha story, and even before his time, Syria has been constantly warring against Israel and often being victorious. He oppressed them constantly. For decades upon decades, Israelite kings worried about their enemy to the north when the next army would come down. Here Elisha says, finally, the Lord will give victory over this dreaded enemy. But there's more to this good news than simply the proclamation of Elisha. The good news is that Israel's security is not tied up in Elisha himself. You see, Israel's great miracle worker, that great prophet, is about to die. But that's okay. And that's okay because Yahweh, the Lord God, is still there. And Israel's hope and security does not ultimately a rest in a particular man, it is found in God, as it always is. It's the same with us as well. Our hope is not in people, but in the Lord. You see, Elisha was nothing without the Lord. God raised up Elisha. God filled him with his Holy Spirit. 
God did those great miracles through Elisha. And God would continue, continue to work salvation for his people. Besides, as great as his ministry was, Elisha was not the main event that the people of God were waiting for. It was necessary for Elisha to make way for our Lord Jesus Christ, who, who is and, and who was the main event we were waiting for, the great prophet, the great miracle worker. When we look at the ministry of Christ, we can see similarities also again to our text. Christ, like Elisha, was a great miracle worker in Israel, and even more so. And Jesus' disciples, they marveled at his work. And they certainly didn't want to let the Lord Jesus go either. You know, in fact, when we read the Gospels, we have many good reasons to believe they were not expecting Jesus to die at all, but to go on living forever. And this was not an absurd expectation. The Old Testament speaks this way about the coming Christ or Messiah. God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. It would be logical for them to think this was in Jerusalem. Psalm 72 speaks of him sitting on the throne as long as the sun shines in the sky. And the Jews seem to understand the Christ or the Messiah this way also. In John 12, the crowd said, We have heard from the law that the Christ or Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up and his die on a cross? And then when Jesus taught his disciples that the Christ must suffer many things and then die in Jerusalem, Peter rebuked him, rebuked the Lord Jesus. Essentially, he told the Lord Jesus, you know what, your theology is, is all wrong. But Peter was the one who had his theology all wrong. And the rest of the disciples were the same. That's why they did not understand when Christ spoke to them about going away, and then when Jesus dies, they're, they're devastated. But they had to know that in this great miracle work or two, in our Lord Jesus Christ, even in his death, God was continuing to work salvation for his people. In fact, we can word it much more strongly than that, supremely and especially in Jesus' death. God was working salvation for us, his people. For in Jesus' death, our, our sins are forgiven. He freed us from slavery to Satan. And he saved us from the power of the grave. But Christ, like Elisha, also left us with a proclamation of victory at various points. He told his disciples in John 16, In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I stand above it. My kingdom will be victorious, the kingdom that believers belong to. 
Before he ascended into heaven, he commissioned his disciples, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Christ was saying, I stand above every rule and authority here on earth. So my kingdom will expand, make disciples of all nations. Or think about this promise in Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's a proclamation of victory for God's people. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, these are great things. But the proclamation of both, a victory of both Elisha and the Lord Jesus, they require also a response Now, after Elisha proclaimed victory, he told the king, Jehoash, take some arrows and strike the ground. It may have been that he was supposed to hit the ground with them or or even shoot towards the ground outside. And the king struck the ground three times. Now, we might be surprised when our text says that Elisha was furious with the king. He said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until, you, Syria until you have made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Now what's going on here? Perhaps you think, well, that's not really fair. How is the king supposed to know? I probably would have struck the ground only once. I remember thinking that as a child. But there's, there's more going on here. Jehoash has just learned that the arrows mean victory over Syria. And the ne- this next step of striking the ground is a test to see just how much he wants to defeat his enemies. And the heart of the matter is that Jehoash only gives a half-hearted response. That's what's key to um, this episode here. He's not nearly as zealous about gaining victory as he should be. And you know what, beloved? We're often cut from the same cloth as King Jehoash. Now, how often do we not make a half-hearted effort in the, in the fight against sin? Listen to, for example, to what God has promised and commanded in Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's, right. That's what God has done for us. Let not sin, therefore, reign, have rule in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Instead, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. God has freed us in the cross of Christ. He calls us to fight against sin. He calls us to put sin to death. We should ask ourselves, and myself included, how much zeal goes into your personal fight against sin? How much zeal goes in your personal fight against your sin? Are you giving a half-hearted response 
like Jehoash, where you, you want to hang on to a, a pet sin because you just don't want to let it go. Right? God calls us to holy warfare and to not give the, the devil even a foothold in our life, to, to kill sin, to, to put it away completely, remove it from our life, and not to keep it around. Commit yourself to this with a holy zeal. Commit to it with your whole heart. That brings us to our next point, which is a surprising resurrection. So soon after this proclamation of victory, Elisha died and was buried. And that leads to, uh, into a fascinating addition to this story of Elisha. Verse 20 describes how, at this time, a bands of Moabite raiders would come into the land of Israel. They would plunder the people. And during this time, on one occasion, an anonymous Israelite died, and he was being buried by some of his fellow countrymen. And when they were burying him, they saw one of these raiding bands coming closer. And so when they saw this, they, they acted as fast as they could. They didn't want to leave the body just out in the open, but they also didn't want to get caught by the raiding party. So they quickly cast the body of the man into a grave. It happened to be the grave of Elisha. And it may have been a tomb, something in the side of a rock as well. But anyways, the fascinating thing is what happens next. As they unceremoniously dump the body of the man into the grave, he touched the bones of Elisha. And instantly, upon touching Elisha's bones, this man is revived. He, he springs to life again. He stood on his feet. It's really incredible. And we might even think it's a little bit bizarre. Now, what's going on here? I remember a catechism student uh, years ago asked me about this event before. Why did the man come to life again when he touched Elisha's bones? Well, good question. Well, while I wish I could give an absolutely firm answer, it's hard to say uh, specifically for sure. However, there's one thing I can definitely assure you of. There was nothing special about Elisha's bones themselves that brought this man to life. And if you were to search northern Israel in order to find Elisha's bones in hopes of resurrecting people, then all I can say is, sorry, it's not going to work. So what does this surprising resurrection mean, first of all? Well, it shows more than anything God's ongoing work of salvation despite Elisha's death. The proclamation of victory over Syria in point one is great. Israel would be saved from the dreaded Syrians. But there's a greater enemy than the Syrians. That enemy is death. It's the greatest enemy of all. At the end of the day, this is what Israel needs. Victory over this enemy. And this is what 
we need, everyone on earth needs victory over the grave. And God was showing by this resurrection that victory over this enemy was still coming. And why did it happen by the bones of Elisha? Why did this man spring to life when he touched Elisha's bones? Well, I like how one commentator put it when he wrote, The resurrection of the dead man was only brought about by contact with the bones of the dead prophet because God desired in doing this to show his people that the divine power which had been active in Elisha had not by Elisha's death disappeared from Israel. You see, God was at work in Elisha's ministry bringing life to to Israel. That's what Elisha's ministry so often was about, bringing life. But God was the one who brought that life through Elisha. So he's showing here that that life that God brought through Elisha's ministry, God is still working that life for his people. And all throughout the Old Testament, God gave snippets of this good news, this greater good news. That the resurrection of God's people is coming. We see this both in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. The Lord raised people from the dead through their ministry. Uh, We get a glimpse of this, of the resurrection in the book of Job. In Job 19, Job confessed, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I know that my Redeemer lives. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. We can mention others too, including various statements in the book of Psalms. So all these snippets of resurrection in the Old Testament were glimpses of what was, was coming ahead. And in all those resurrections we do see in Scripture, they all required an agent. No one was raised to life all on their own by their own power. Look at this man here in our text. He's raised to life not by his own power, by touching the bones of Elisha. He needed an agent. Furthermore, the power didn't lie in Elisha himself. If it did, Elisha could have raised himself from the dead, but here Elisha is still dead, lying in the grave, could not raise himself. And all this makes Jesus' resurrection unique among other resurrections in the Bible. Jesus Christ is the most surprising resurrection of all. And I mean that in two senses. First of all, the disciples have been devastated by Jesus' death. They didn't understand that Jesus had to suffer and to die. But then they were absolutely stunned when their Lord came to life again and he appeared to them. Some of them could could hardly come to believe it at all. But the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is surprising also in another sense. It is unique in Scripture. It did not require another human being to bring it about. But Christ himself broke through the bonds of death as the Son of God. 
What was God declaring through that unique and surprising resurrection of Christ? That Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. It's found in Him. It's found in Him alone. Jesus is the life source of every other resurrection. And so if we want eternal life, we need to find it in our Lord Jesus Christ. God sure promises that if you believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you too will be raised on the last day. Listen to the words of Christ himself in John 6, verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is the power of our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. You know, there's an interesting event and happened alongside uh, Jesus' own death and resurrection that matches our, our text in some ways. And Matthew 27 describes it for us. Uh, immediately upon his death on the cross, we read in Matthew 27, And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Right? Those snippets of the resurrection we see in the Old Testament, also in our text, they build steam. They start coming to a, a loud crescendo with the death and resurrection of Christ. And God does this so that you would know without a doubt that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. He has overcome our greatest enemy for us. And so there will be a future resurrection of believers on the last day. That brings us to our last point. Now the final part of our text, beginning in verse 22, backtracks to an earlier part of history. It uh, recounts how Hazel, king of Syria, pressed Israel all the days of King Jehoahaz. King Jehoahaz was a was father of King Jehoash in our text. So Hazel, king of Syria, continually attacked Israel, but then we read these beautiful words in verse 23. But the Lord was gracious to Israel and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now, or up to this point, as we could translate it. So in these words, we see the ultimate reason why God continued his work of salvation for his people. And this is why Elisha proclaims victory over Syria. And this is why God raised this Israelite man from the dead. It didn't have anything to do with Israel themselves. It had everything to do with God himself. It was because of who our God is. Because of his pure mercy, his compassion and faithfulness that is part of his very nature and being. 
No, God did not have to do this in our text. God could have destroyed Israel. He had every right to, after all their apostasy and bold-faced rebellion, a decade after decade after decade. But He did it. He showed them His mercy and compassion, and this is our great God. And this is why, ultimately, He sent Jesus Christ into the world as well. Think only of 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice that turns aside God's wrath. This ultimately is why God acts in salvation. It's because of Him and who He is. And we see from this passage that these were not mere empty words of God or about God. At the end of our text, we see God fulfilling His word once again. Hazael, king of Syria, died. Then Hadad, his son, became king in his place. It says, At that time, Jehoash took back the cities that were lost to Syria during his father's reign. And then it says, Three times Jehoash defeated or Jehoash defeated Ben-Hadad, recovered the cities of Israel. And so the, the word of the Lord was fulfilled, spoken by Elisha. And this is a theme in Elisha's ministry. Elisha made proclamations, proclaimed the word of the Lord, and those proclamations came true. They were fulfilled. And this is a theme in the entire Bible. The word of the Lord will be fulfilled. You can count on it. And so what must we do in response to the word of the Lord? Well, let us believe it. Let us read the word of God. Believe what it says. Let us look forward in faith to what God has promised. They are not empty promises. And so as you read the Word of God, as you read a promise of God in Jesus Christ for His people, then believe it. Embrace it with your heart. Do you hear a command of God for Christians to follow? Obey it. Follow it. It's the Word of the Lord. In every way, God's word will prove true. It will be fulfilled. Every promise and prophecy of Christ will come true. Just think about the last part of our text. Describes how Israel's inheritance was being restored through its king. It wasn't yet expanded all the way to the edge of what God promised Israel. That would take it all the way to the Euphrates River. But here we see it expanding again. And this, too, points us to our Lord Jesus Christ. The inheritance of Christ is not just from the land of Egypt to the Euphrates River, like it was for Old Testament Israel. The the inheritance of Christ is the entire earth. As God proclaimed in Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession, You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There's a proclamation of victory again. 
And this promise of God will be fulfilled because God is faithful and God is powerful to do it. Christ Jesus will have the victory. He will regain the whole world for God and for God's people. And he is at work even now to reclaim the entire world as his kingdom expands on the earth. Amen.